I am reading a book. I've had this book for years and I finally got around to reading it. It's called The Great Poems of the Bible and it's by a man named James Kugel. James Kugel is a Jew. He is not a rabbi. I will read from his book liner bio. He is the star professor of Hebrew literature at Harvard University and he's a visiting professor of Bible studies at Bar Ilion University in Israel, author of a number of books. He's also the former poetry editor for Harper's Magazine. I have a number of his books and they are all excellent. Obviously he's a Hebrew scholar. He's a believer by the way, not a messianic believer, he's a Jewish believer and he regards the Bible as scripture. In fact, one of the books that he wrote which is also very good, is in the Valley of the Shadow. He had cancer and trusted in God to save him, trusted in God to heal him. And the book is his testimony of his going through cancer. So I'm going to be working from his book this evening. And the name of the book is The Great Poems of the Bible. Some of them are some Psalms, some of them are for prophets. It's various poetry taken from the Bible. With each poem, he then has a commentary on the poem. His perspective, and the reason I like him, is he knows enough about the language and the culture, and especially the culture in the region, that he is able to interpret scripture from the perspective of the people who were there when it was written. And that I find just an absolutely fascinating perspective. He tries to put himself in the mind and in the culture of the people back then as he explains what the scripture is saying. And as I say, he's just excellent. I would like to start with his Psalm 51. And one of the things that he does with each of these poems is he translates it himself. So the translation that I'm going to read is his translation. It is not any authorized book translation. So it's not the ESV, it's not the Jewish Publication Society, it's not the Tanakh, it's not the King Jimmy. This is his translation. And the way he is translating it is to give you a sense of what it would have meant to the author, how it would have sounded. So he's sort of taken the biblical Hebrew and moved it up to our time using our common words today, because one of the things that said lots of times, King James is 1600 English, and nobody speaks 1600 English anymore. And furthermore, what happens when people try and translate the Bible is they want to make it sound majestic. So they tend to use formal language. And in the case of King James, the translators of King James used words that were obsolete in 1600 when they translated it. So for example, if I were to walk up to you and say, how art thou, Ursula? Well, nobody says, how art thou anymore except me. I do it all the time, but most people don't. It's archaic. So the translators of King James were taking King James and going back 50 or 100 years from the current stuff. So their language was archaic at the time. He has undone that for the Psalms so that he's trying to put it in 
language for us as the familiar language would have been at the time of David. So what I want you to do is go into your Bible and go to Psalm 51 and follow along in your Bible as I read it from Kugel's translation. So you'll be able to see the differences. And we'll start off just by reading it. Be generous, God, in your kindness. In your great mercy, erase what I did. Wash me clean of my misdeed. Purify me of my sin. For I know that I did wrong. My sin is always on my mind. You are the one I offended. I did what is evil in your sight. You always are fair in your sentence, impartial in what you decree. But consider, I was born to transgression, conceived by my mother in sin. Secretly, you love faithfulness. So in secret, help me grow wise. Clean me with hyssop till I am pure. Wash me till I am whiter than snow. Let me have gladness and joy once again. Let the bones that you struck rejoice. Turn away from my sin and blot out all my offenses. God, make me a pure heart. Put a new right spirit inside of me. Please don't send me away. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Give me back the joy of your help. Hold me up with a kindly spirit. Let me teach sinners your ways, so offenders may turn back to you. God, my salvation, save me from death, so I can celebrate your kindness. Open my lips, O Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You don't want any sacrifice I could give. You have no desire for offerings. God's sacrifices are a chastened spirit, a chastened, broken heart God will not reject. And in your favor be good to Zion, rebuild Jerusalem's walls. Then true sacrifices will be your delight, whole and burnt offerings. Then let the sacrificial animals go up to your altars. Kay was talking to me this afternoon, and she said, I don't understand this business about being conceived by my mother in sin. So verse 5 in English Standard. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And Kay was saying, I don't understand why that's thrown in there. Look at his translation, though. Very different. Starting in verse 3. You are the one I offended. I did what was evil in your sight. You always are fair in your sentence, impartial in what you decree. But consider, I was born to transgression conceived by my mother in sin. So what he's saying there is, you are just, you are righteous, but understand that I am born mortal and I am born among sinful people. And the fact that I have fallen into sin is something that everybody born of women eventually does. And that makes a whole lot more sense to me than... Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me, because that seems sort of like a non sequitur. But with his translation, you understand the plea that he's making to God. And it takes somebody with his breadth of knowledge and understanding to understand that. And certainly, I, I think that's a better translation. Now, I'm going to sort of make some of the points that he makes in his essay, because that's also very good. Some of this you have heard because I've taught it in other contexts. You probably have gotten it from other sources too. You've all 
are used to the concept of holy and common or holy and profane. Has anybody here read letters by soldiers during the Civil War? The sense of God and the sense of religion that those people have are very different than our sense of it today. A sense of being in God's presence and God's hands, the sense of having a relationship with God, the sense that God was involved in this great struggle was as natural to them as breathing air. It wasn't something that had to be explained because everybody understood it. That was the spiritual milieu, if you will, in the 1860s and 1850s. We are very different now. So in the case of David, the milieu in Israel was this idea of holy and common. And everything was divided between holy and common. It was one or the other. Stuff that was holy was stuff that was set aside for God. Stuff that was common was for everyday use. Everything was one of those or the other. And it was something that was always on their mind. It was something that they were always mindful of. And the graph that I use is an orthogonal graph. So you have holy and common, stuff that's reserved for God and stuff that's just ordinary. And then on a perpendicular axis, you have tahor and tamai, or what most of your Bibles translate as clean and unclean. Clean and unclean have nothing to do with sanitation. For example, dirt in this sense is not unclean because you can go into the presence of God with dirt on you, but you can't go into the presence of God while you're unclean. Now, you can become unclean in a number of ways. You can have contact with a dead body. You can have contact with a leper, for example. Both men and women become unclean due to reproductive bodily functions. Women in the menses, men in emission of semen. And the deal is, when you are in an unclean state, you cannot physically come into holy space. So the deal here is, in Israel, everybody was always conscious of what state they were in, whether they were in a clean or pure state, or whether they were in an unclean state. They were always aware of that. They were always aware, if they were in an unclean state, whether that could be communicated. Some uncleanliness is communicable, which means that if you touch someone who is in that unclean state, that state transfers to you. Not all of it's that way. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. And the Bible has got all sorts of rules about that, and I'm not going to go through that in detail. But the whole point is, in Israel, everybody always knew what state they were in, and when you were in a state of cleanliness, ritual purity, you physically had to walk in a way that you didn't inadvertently become unclean. So, for example, you could not walk through a cemetery because if you did so, you would become unclean. So the idea of your walk, in that case, was physical. How do you walk? Where do you walk? And you can't be careless with this. So what David is asking when he is saying, cleanse me, is he is saying, bring me to a state where I am now able to come into your presence. Because when I am in an unclean state, I cannot come into your presence. So the first thing I need to do is I need to get clean, and there's physical 
procedures involved in that in every case. This is not just a case of saying a little sinner's prayer and everything's forgiven and off we go. No, there were physical things that you had to do in order to get yourself into a state where you could come into a holy space as opposed to a common space. So as you're reading this, the closest thing that we have to this different spiritual regime, I will suggest, is things like letters from the Civil War. And that, in our modern way of looking at stuff, is jarring because their sense of God is so different than our sense of God today. And take that same feeling and now transpose it back 3,000 years to the time of David, and you start to get a sense of what David is speaking about here. The holy and profane space that existed at the time of the tabernacle and the temple no longer exists. It will again, it does not at the moment. And what the Orthodox are doing is they are staying in practice so that when it is reinstated, they will know how to behave. That's what all of these rituals that an Orthodox community and an Orthodox family go through are about. It isn't that there's any practical problem today with an Orthodox man contacting Tamai because there's no temple. But they're staying in practice so that when there is a temple, they will know how to behave. So the first thing here is, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What we're talking about here is move me from a state of sinful uncleanliness into a state of cleanliness so that I can then move from a common space into a holy space. Now, Kugel goes to Isaiah 6 and makes a really interesting point. So I'm in Isaiah 6, verse 4. And this is Isaiah in the throne room. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now there is nothing in the Torah about unclean lips. Being of unclean lips is not a Torah concept. What he's doing is he's using a metaphor, which is to say, I have spoken carelessly because walking carelessly in Israel, you may become unclean inadvertently. Similarly, if you speak in a careless manner, you may become, if you will, a man of unclean lips. And what it bespeaks is people who speak carelessly and don't watch their words and don't pay attention to what they say. And I live among people who are not watching what they say. They're not watching their words. So it's not the case that he is Tamai. He's simply saying, I have been careless in my speech, just like I could have been careless in my walk and have contracted uncleanness in that. So the next thing that's going on is, of course, you all know the backstory of Psalm 51. The backstory is that David was not out campaigning at the time when kings were supposed to be out campaigning, and he was lolling around the palace, and Bathsheba snapped her thong at him, and he sinned. And if that weren't bad enough, what he did is he then arranged for Uriah, her husband, to be killed in battle so that his sin would not be found out. 
Kugel makes an interesting point that I have seen in other contexts, but not quite this way, and that's why I'm mentioning it to you. In Israel, the relationship between the people and the king is an uneasy one because in all of the kingdoms in the surrounding area, the kings are often deified. So, for example, Pharaoh is a god. During the Roman time, the Roman Caesar was deified. Nebuchadnezzar sets up this big statue and says, all right, I want you all to fall down. A modern example is the Dalai Lama. What happens in their estimation, deity is inhabiting a human form for a time. And when that human form dies, the deity will pass on to a different human form. So when Israel sets up a king, there's always this uneasy relationship because the example is kings get big heads and start to want to be deified. Israel, of course, can't allow that to happen. And the mechanism that's set up in Israel by God is the prophet. And what the prophet does is he is able to walk into the throne room of the king and he is able to grab the king by the stacking swivel and say, I'm going to talk, O king, and you're going to listen because I'm speaking for God. So in the case of Bathsheba, what happens is David has thought that he's gotten away with it. Uriah's dead. Bathsheba is now in his harem. And Nathan comes into his presence and upbraids him. And of course, you all know the story. You had a man with only one sheep, and you had a rich man that had a whole flock. And when the rich man wanted to set up a dinner for a friend, he didn't kill one of his own sheep. Instead, he went and took the only sheep, you know, that kind of thing. So you have this relationship, if you will, between prophet and king, which is unique in Israel. The last thing I want to talk about is the sense of sin. One of the things that David says is, God, make me a pure heart. Put a new right spirit inside me. Please don't send me away. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Give me back the joy of your help. Hold me up with your kindly spirit. And up in verse 2, wash me clean of my misdeed. Purify me of my sin. For I know that I did wrong. My sin is always on my mind. So the idea of conscience there, that once you have gotten out of the will of God and you have sinned, this sense of sin nags at you. And if you go to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, and I'll pick it up at verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food, so forth. This idea of the conscience being seared. These are people who have lost a sense of sinfulness. In other words, they are able to sin and it doesn't bother them anymore. What David is talking about in Psalm 51 is, I know I have sinned and it gives me no peace. I don't have any peace at all. I have this sense of my separation and sinfulness always before me. And until you clean me and until you forgive me, I cannot get rid of this sense of sin that I am carrying with me. The idea here in Timothy, searing is a medical term. So when you have a wound, you 
sear it, cauterize it, to sterilize it and stop the bleeding. So when it says their consciences are seared, what that means is the part of their soul that is able to bother them when they have gone into sin has been seared away and cauterized and is no longer operative inside of them. That's, by the way, not somewhere you want to be. So in the psalm here, David is acutely aware of his sin, and what he's asking is for God to cleanse him so that that sense of his sin will be taken away. And interestingly, God talks to him, forgives him through the prophet, and God says that the child that Bathsheba is carrying will die. So when the child is born, it falls sick, and in about a week's time, it dies. From the time of the birth until the time of its death, David has himself covered in ashes and sackcloth, and he is prostrating himself before God, pleading for the child. As soon as the child dies, he pops up, washes his hair, goes in, gets a big meal, and is off doing king stuff. And his servants looked at him and said, what? Wait a minute. Here you are, prostrating yourself before God, mourning, weeping before God, pleading with him. And once the child dies, you don't go into mourning. You pop up, wash your face, grab a meal, and go off and do king stuff. What's going on? And David said, well, while the child yet lived, there was a possibility that I could prevail upon God and he might change his mind. Once the child has died, that possibility is gone, so my mourning does no good, so I'm going to go off and do king stuff now. David's a very pragmatic guy. The last thing that Kugel talks about, which is very different from Christianity, is in the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, there is never any assurance that God will forgive. In other words, as David pleads his case before God, it is not at all a sure thing that God is going to accept his plea. I'll give you an example, the sin of the spies. When the spies came back with a bad report from the land, and everybody panicked and said, oh, why'd you ever take us out into the desert? Send us back to Egypt, on and on and on. And God gets mildly ticked with them and says, you're all going to die in the desert. So the next thing they do is they repent. And they come before God and say, we have sinned. We will do what you've asked us to do. And Moses says, uh, sorry, don't go up there because you're going to get your butts kicked. God is not accepting that. You are going to die in the desert. And they did. God does forgive, but there's no assurance that he will. And that's what David says here. And he says, you will not reject a contrite spirit. And what Kugel is saying, and I think I agree with him, is what that is, is he is talking to God in a positive way, but it's still up to God whether God actually does it. Let me give you an example. In the Torah portion, the angels were on their way down to take out Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, surely you won't do wrong. You won't do unjustly. If there are 50 righteous men in there, you couldn't possibly destroy this place. Well, God doesn't have to agree to that. Abraham is expressing it positively. You know, surely, God, you won't destroy it if there's 50 people there. And the fact is, God says, okay, fine. I won't destroy it if there's 50. And we, you know, we work our way all the way down to 10. But Abraham is speaking, this will sound trivial, but it's not. He's speaking like a salesman. As in, ah, 
successful man like you, surely you are not going to buy this cheapo used car. You're going to buy this brand new one because that's the only thing that's suitable for a man like you. But it's still up to God to buy. And one thing, by the way, is in Tanakh, you don't have the historical sacrifice of Yeshua. And the sacrifice of Yeshua is all over the Tanakh, but it hasn't happened yet. And what we have is we have the historical understanding that the covenant was cut in his blood. And we have the historical understanding that should we ask for it, our sins are covered. And that doesn't exist in the Tanakh. Yet, God does forgive in the Tanakh. And my understanding of that is that since the sacrifice of Yeshua happens outside of the time stream, and it says very clearly in the New Testament that he died for the sins of all mankind, whether you realize it or not. And what we have is the realization that the sacrifice was made and the blood was shed. So the assurance of forgiveness is there. The assurance of the avoidance of the consequences is never there. If you go out on a Saturday night and knock over a liquor store and you fall down on your face and ask God for forgiveness, you will be forgiven. You will also go to jail. There's a difference between forgiveness and consequences. One other thing, Kugel talks about this and I like it a lot. In order to be rendered pure, you have to give up the things that make you impure. And there's a rabbinic saying, as long as a person holds a source of impurity in his hand, then even if he washes in Siloam or all the waters of creation, he can never be purified. But if he casts the impurity away from his hand, a bath of minimum measure is enough to purify him. So does it say, he who confesses and abandons his sin will gain mercy. So the idea there, in the case of purity, if you are holding something in your hand that renders you impure, you can go through a mikvah and you'll come up on the other side and you'll still be impure. You have to release it in order to be purified. So it says here, so too with sin. And my favorite analogy is that a whole lot of people have a goat in the back of their house on a leash. And every time they need forgiveness, they prick the goat and shed a little bit of blood, but they don't kill the goat because they're going to need it again. They're not done with their sin. And so they have this goat there that they just bleed periodically because they need some blood to cover their sin, but they don't kill the goat because they're going to need it again. The idea here is when you repent, you have to repent. And you have to resolve not to do it again. So you have to ask forgiveness, which David does in the psalm. And you have to change, repent, and not do it again. Mm-hmm.